Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message of another confrontation Jesus has with the religious establishment as he seeks to tear down the barriers they had built up. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Hey, uh, Matthew 21, um, we are, so uh, over the last couple of weeks and over the next three months, we have been unpacking, so for the whole year, we've been unpacking the gospel of Matthew, the life of Jesus as told by Matthew, uh, and we are now spending, time slowed way down, and we spent the last two weeks and the next three months just unpacking one week in the life of Jesus. And uh, this is the week that begins on Palm Sunday, so a couple weeks ago, we talked about Palm Sunday, and Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and uh, the crowds are shouting, and they're waving palm branches. They're declaring him king. Big moment. And, uh, and then over the course of just a few days, uh, the, the things are going to turn. And um, we are counting down the days between Palm Sunday and then Good Friday, and then later Easter Sunday. And uh, Matthew puts a lot in between these two stories. And so what we've been trying to do over the last few weeks is we're peeling back the various layers of the story. And so we've talked about the historical, political, geographical, social, and uh, biblical layers of the story. And I know it's been pretty dense stuff. Um, so I, I hear you. I, I watched the screensaver mode move on some of your faces kind of minute 15 last week. Um, dense stuff. But what I want to build is I want you to get a sense of the drama that's behind this entire story. Uh, Jesus wasn't just... A uh, nice guy who taught people how to love each other. That, that's true, um, but, but they killed him. And uh, there's a, the tension builds and the drama builds. And Jesus essentially will get executed because he stands up for the, the people that they didn't want him standing up for. Jesus gets executed because um, he continues to take on the political and religious power establishments of his day. So if we're going to understand that, we got to do some... Like, okay, what, what were those structures? What, what did he say? How did he say it? And who were the people that he was defending? Who were the people that Jesus actually was willing to, to lay his life down to make sure that they had a voice? And so uh, we've been looking at that last week. We left the story kind of abruptly. We, we left it at this moment in which Jesus curses a fig tree. And um, if, you, if you weren't here, we talked about how the fig tree was the symbol of the Jewish priesthood at the time of Jesus. And so by cursing the fig tree... Jesus is making a pretty loaded political statement, um, a pretty low, loaded religious statement in his day. Now, we're going to take the story up there, um, but I want you to see this side of Jesus. So keep in mind, that this side of Jesus that's going to do everything he can to defend the weakest and remove any barrier between people and God. Okay, we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week. Um, verse 20 of Matthew 21 Matthew 21. Uh, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, um, if Jesus' message last week wasn't crystal clear, the whole cursing of the fig tree thing, if the religious leaders didn't pick up on what he was saying in that moment, uh, this one certainly is. Um, now, um, one thing to, to remember in the story is that Jesus is in Jerusalem. This isn't where he's from. Uh, going back to a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, uh, I'll go back. Sort of, maybe I don't have a map of this. Uh, Jesus is from a city way north, a city called Capernaum, in a region known as the Galilee. He's now in Jerusalem. When Jesus, here, we'll stay here, stay on this map. Um, so Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, but he's from 90 miles north up here. Um, but Jesus, I blocked it out for suspense reasons. Uh, we'll get there later. Um, Jesus is referring to a mountain. And he says, if, if, if you have faith, you can say to a mountain, but he says this mountain, to jump into the sea, which is right here, and it will. I'm not, at first glance, I can feel like, okay, that's kind of cryptic, and it's just Jesus speaking in metaphors. But what you discover is there is an odd-shaped-looking mountain. If you've been to Israel, you've probably seen this odd-shaped-looking mountain. It, 
Doesn't look like any of the other mountains in Israel around this area. In fact, there's not a lot of mountains around this area at all. It kind of, it kind of just stands out. It's, uh, well, it's odd looking. It's, it looks like a pimple um, growing out of the... <laughs> now that you have that metaphor in your head. Um, it's an odd looking mountain. And so I want to propose to you that when Jesus talks about, when he says, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, jump into the sea, and it will. This is the mountain Jesus is referring to. Almost certainly, this specific mountain is what he's referring to. And not only does he make a loaded statement in this moment, the audience understands exactly what he's saying. This is this particular statement, the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, then the fig tree, and then this moment, Jesus is making a statement that will end with uh, the section, if you drop down to verse 46, they, the religious leaders, looked for a way to arrest Jesus. So, The fuse has been lit, and now we are going to explore a series of questions that these religious leaders are going to have for Jesus that will end based on how Jesus responds to these questions with them looking for a way to arrest him. And and that arrest is going to quickly turn to, well, now we got to kill him. Um, So this morning, I got to take, I'm going to apologize in advance, but I got to take you deep into the world of Jesus once again. Take a deep breath. I want to introduce you this morning uh, to a group of people that are largely responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. A group of people known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees. Because that mountain you looked at has quite the backstory to it. So the question I want to spend some time in this morning is, who are these Sadducees? Now, a quick recap from last week. Uh, Jesus is from, I think this is probably where I put the map. Uh, Jesus is from the north. He's talking about this region, but he's in Jerusalem for a festival. What's the festival? Passover. It's coming up in just a few days. Jesus is here, like all good Jews, for a festival. And so all good Jews would leave their homes wherever they lived, and they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, this region, uh, the religious people we bumped into in this region, the first several chapters of Matthew, was a group of religious people known as the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees live in the north. Now, we're going to bump into them again in Jerusalem because they're also there for the Passover. But by and large, the Pharisees come from the north. The people we meet, the religious leaders we meet in Jerusalem are not the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees. Um, And these two are different. Uh, In fact, uh, the, the, the Pharisees, even though Jesus will have a lot of confrontations with the Pharisees, they disagree on religious practice, but by and large, they agree on worldview. In fact, twice, they, uh, it's a Pharisee who will defend Jesus and keep, uh, to try to like, spare his life. But Jesus will spend five days with the Sadducees, and it'll end with his death. Okay, so it's important that we understand that the Pharisees, they're hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach, but Jesus lives with them relatively peacefully. He spends five days with these Sadducees, and it'll end with his death. So who are the Sadducees? Who are these people? I'm going to give you five things that I think are really important to know for the story we're going to look at. Hang with me through these five things. I promise you, um, each of them will play a crucial role in our story. But you got to hang with me through the five things. Um, i got to kind of lay out my case. Uh, Remember the the show Columbo? we got to put together our... Do you remember? Is that still relevant? Are kids watching Columbo? Kids, you should look up Columbo. It's fantastic. Peter Falk, remember? Awesome. Okay, five things you need to know. <laughs> Sorry, I got ADD brain today. I'm warning you. Um, five things you need to know about, uh, about the Sadducees. First, in order to understand the Sadducees, we need to know where they come from. So I got to take you back into some history. For those of you who love history, that's good news. If you don't, I'll go through it quickly. But I got to take you back to the Maccabean Revolt once again. It's really hard to understand the significance of Jesus last week and how the first audience would have understood this week without knowing the events of 200 years earlier with the Maccabean Revolt. So, quick recap. Judas Maccabees takes on the Greeks. He wins. Yay, we're free people again. Very first move. They come into the Temple Mount. They cleanse the Temple Mount of all the pagan images, of all those pagan gods, Zeus and Dionysus. Cleanse the Temple Mount. His next move is he needs someone to be in power. Uh, he needs someone to lead us. 
We need to find somebody who, now that we are free again, the Greeks are gone, somebody's got to lead us. Well, how about Judas Maccabee? No, too much blood on his hands. Plus, we don't want a king. We've seen what kings have done, right? We've tried the king thing. And by the way, didn't God in Deuteronomy tell us not to have a king? Didn't God say, I'll be your king? Don't take on a king. I'll be your king. We want to do it this time the way God wanted us to do it the first time. God said, I'll be your king, and I will lead you through a group of people known as the priests. So you find this early, now free nation of Israel. They need, they need to set up a whole new political system. They need a, a, a way to be led, and they decide, we're going to put the priests back in charge. Now, there are a lot of priests at this time. Which priests do we put in charge? They decide, well, how about we trace our roots back to the very first high priest of the very first temple, Solomon's temple. His name was a guy by the name of Zadok. Zadok. Zadok, now uh, 1,500 years have passed between Zadok and Maccabees, and so his family has grown. Zadok has gone from one family to seven families. So now we've got one family moved to seven families. Which one do we put in charge? They decide, well, what if, instead of putting one in charge, what if we put all seven of them in charge? They would function essentially kind of like a check and balance against each other, right? If one of them can't grab too much power, they'll have to agree with each other. So they decide to put the families of Zadok. Now, if you were going to make Zadok in Hebrew plural, you call it Zadokim. The families of Zadok would be the Zadokim. If you're going to say that in English, you would say Sadducees. Ah. So the seven families of Zadok, the Sadducees, they come into power. And uh, these, this family essentially, um, now again, were there other priests? Yes. Uh, according to the book of Exodus, anyone from the tribe of Levi is a priest. So anyone who's from one family group, Levi, is a priest. But these seven families of Zadok, the Zadokim, or the Sadducees, they become what your Bible refers to as the chief priests. Okay? Just putting some history together. Stay with me. It's all, in our, it's all in there. Okay, so it's all in our story. The chief priests. So now we have priests, anyone from the tribe of Levi, and you have this family, the seven families of priests known as the chief priests. Now, it doesn't take long, about 20 years, according to Josephus, doesn't take long for these chief priests to kind of fall in love with the power of the whole thing. They like being in charge. And, uh, and, and yes, they hated the Greeks. Thank you, Judas Maccabees, for getting rid of the Greeks. We hated the Greeks. But you know what? We kind of liked some of the things of the Greeks. We liked the palaces. We liked the, uh, the arenas. We loved the sports of the Greeks. Like We loved the, the cuisine of the Greeks. We loved the money and the architecture of the Greeks. More than anything, we really loved the power that the Greeks had. Here's the second thing you need to know about Sadducees. Sadducees loved their power. Within 20 years, these seven families, the Sadducees, the Zadokim, or the chief priests, become a type of religious mafia. You read in your Bible about the temple guard. The temple guard is essentially the hitman. They work for the mafia, the mob, of the seven families known as the chief priests. In fact, according to the first century historian Josephus, these chief priests will, will make sure that when the money's coming in, they get the highest pay. Josephus even says, that in one year, they decide they're going to take all of the temple money, keep it themselves, and not pay the other priests. This leaves the priesthood split. Are you following this? Now we have the priesthood split. Third thing to know about the, uh, the Sadducees. In the years leading up to Jesus, the priesthood splits. Now remember, there are other priests and so now the other priests have to make a decision. Are we with these chief priests or are we against these chief priests? Some of them say, we love, we hate what they did. We hate that they're ripping us off. But what we love the worldview of the Sadducees. 
We love the power of them. We love being invited to their banquets. We love being special guests at the arena with them. Uh, there's, um, Josephus records one year that you, they could not find a priest in all of Israel on the Sabbath because they were all at the naked mud baths. <laughs> we kind of like that. Uh, so they decide. They kind of like the, the worldview of the Sadducees. It's, you know what? It's, and it's better that we're with them than that we're against them. We kind of like what they do for us. So they decide to link arms and become part of them. They become essentially Sadducees. They're still from the tribe of Levi. They're not technically the chief priests, but they're, they agree with them. But there is another group, uh, another group of priests who they look at what these chief priests are doing and they say, no, it's not right. It's not good. It is not godly. This is not the way God designed the system. They decide to commit themselves to essentially everything that the chief priests stood against. Simple lives, modest lives, quiet lives, simple food, uh, simple lives devoted to Bible study and to prayer. They refer to themselves as a group known as the Essenes. Okay? We have found, uh, essentially, they move away from Jerusalem and they create these monasteries. We found several of them. We found one major one in a city called Qumran. It's where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? From the village of Qumran. Let me show you that on a map. Uh, Qumran is here. Okay, so that mountain we were talking about is in here. Jerusalem is here. Qumran is here. The Essenes leave the temple to practice their priesthood in Qumran, and in several other areas where they built these monasteries devoted to simple lives. The word Essene means the modest ones. So now we have a, a priesthood who is split. On one side, you have the chief priests, the Sadducees, those seven families, the mob, the mafia of religious leaders. And on the other side, not in Jerusalem, you have another priesthood of uh, the Essenes, the modest ones. That brings me to a fourth point to know about uh, the Sadducees. Fourth thing, unlike the, Essene, unlike the Essenes, the Sadducees are not modest. They, I've said this before, but they loved their money and they loved their status. Uh, in fact, they built these mansions outside of the temple. Let me show you. Uh, this is one of their houses. It's hard to tell um, that it's a house because it's now a church. Um, and so when you go inside it now, it, it looks like a church because the church moved in shortly after this period. Uh, in fact, this house was mostly destroyed during the Roman invasion in 70 AD. Let me show you a diagram that archaeologists have put together that kind of shows what this would have looked like. There are, in this house, 21 mikvahs, 17 bedrooms, uh, it's a terraced house, so it's built into the side of a mountain. You have multiple staircases, multiple levels. Um, let me show you another picture. This is a mansion, we would call it. Uh, it's in, a, it's in the, the best spot in all of Jerusalem. It, it's on top of a hill that looks down upon the Temple Mount, about 300 yards away. Perfect location, best location. Uh, next slide. Uh, again, a lot of this was destroyed in um, the Roman invasion, but notice uh, the murals that would hang. Uh, next slide. Um, this is a mikvah. It's, a, uh, pre it's how you know it's a priest's house, was they'd have lots of these baths for ceremonial cleansing. It's a mikvah. Um, we've got mosaic, tiled mosaic floors. I show you these pictures. I want you to get a sense of the wealth. You get a sense of like, okay, this is how the chief priest lived. Get a sense of that? Sheer wealth, rich, rich, rich. Fifth thing to know about the Sadducees. Uh, fifth, final thing to know about the Sadducees. They decide in the years leading up to Jesus to not just be a religious group. They want to get into politics. Why, you ask? Because we got to protect our power. Here's the backstory. Uh, around 60 years before Jesus, the Romans come in and they decide they're going to finish what the Greeks couldn't do. The Greeks might have lost to Judas Maccabees, but we are stronger than the Greeks. We're going to take Israel. Israel's got a great seaport. Love their seaport. We can do international trade there. Uh, Israel's also the strategic land between Egypt, uh, this footbridge that connects Egypt and all these ancient empires. We want to take Israel. So Rome is on the move. Now, this is a major problem if you're the Sadducees. You, as the Sadducees, 
Um, you've kind of grown to like your life. You kind of like your mansions. You kind of like your power. You kind of like that. Um, do you know that the, according, at the time of Jesus, the average priest would work only two weeks out of the year? Kind of a sweet deal. Kind of like that. But if the Romans come in, they're going to take us down. What do we do? You know, if only we had a king. Wait a minute. Time out. If only you had a king. Didn't you set this whole thing up because the kings were always prone to, like, you set the whole thing up so that you didn't have a king because you were trying to do it the way God said to do it. But they said, if only we had a king. And somehow this king would make peace with the Romans and would somehow protect us. We could keep our power, our money, our stuff. We would lose a little bit of our power to the king, but if we brokered a deal, maybe it would be good news for us and it would be good news for the king. But why would Rome let us have a king? Rome, doesn't, Rome has an emperor. They don't need us to have a king. Ah, but Rome has a weakness. Pretty major weakness at this time. Rome, as it ex is expanding into the world, uh, is getting spread thin. The military is growing. The taxes, they keep conquering the poor, these poorer and poorer countries, so the tax money is not coming in. Essentially, their uh, finances are upside down. Uh, they've got a cash flow problem. How do we keep expanding our empire when um, everything we conquer is costing us more and we don't have enough people? We have a cash flow problem. Well, it turns out, at the same time, there was one man. He was the ambitious son of a king. He's a prince. Uh, this particular king lived in a country called Idumea, just to the south of Israel. His name is Herod. And the Sadducees, these seven families said, Herod, this guy's perfect. He's perfect. Now, where did Herod get his money? Because Herod's rich at this time. Some people will argue that Herod is the wealthiest person who's ever lived. Even if that's an exaggeration, based on what he has built alone, based on just what he's created, Herod was wealthy, 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 wealthy. Herod would um, be able to buy Twitter and Zuckerberg. Right? Just wealth, wealth, wealth. Where did he get his wealth? Well, Herod controlled what was known then as the spice trade. Essentially a road where all of the international trade would move from east to west. This would be like in our world if one person owned all of the oil. Imagine how wealthy somebody would be if they owned all of the oil. You could charge whatever you wanted for it. Herod controlled the spice trade. These seven families said, yeah, but what he doesn't have is he's not a king. His dad's a king, but he's not a king. So they go to Herod and they say, Herod, can we make a deal? We will let you marry one of our daughters. She can become your wife. We'll declare you officially Jewish. You can be our king if you keep our power intact. Protect us from the Romans, please. And we'll make you king. Herod says, well, that seems like a pretty good deal. I'll take it. His first move is he goes to the Romans and he asks the Romans, lead through me. I'll be your puppet king. I'll give you the money you want, um, but give me protection. Bring in your military. Protect me. Um, that's his first. I'll bring in your taxes. His second move, I'm a man of my word, he said. So you chief priests, you're going to be in power. But I don't like this whole system you have where every time you got to make a decision, all seven, you need, seven of you need to agree on it. That just takes way too much time. Way too much time. I, it's just it's not working for me. So to the highest bidder of you seven, you will be the high priest over top of the chief priests. Who can, who can, whoever can gather up the most money, you'll be the high priest. You'll be in charge. And that will stay in your family as long as I'm here. So the seven families get together, and you can imagine the, the interplay between these. Imagine like a family reunion, only we put a cash prize on the end. Like, like, so they, they start interfighting with each other, but essentially they try to raise up the money. And one gentleman comes forward, and he has more money than anyone else. He's a guy by the name of Annas. Now, does Annas show up in your Bible? Yes. But the person you're more familiar with is his son-in-law, a guy by the name of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the, the high priest 
over the chief priests, the high priest over the religious mob at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. He's the guy who oversees it. He's the guy that makes it happen. In fact, remember that house we showed you? This house is Caiaphas's house, at least how archaeologists think it would have looked. The courtyard, this area, is where Peter is, we're told Peter goes and denies Jesus three times. Somewhere in this house, there was an undercover, under the cover of the night meeting of the seven high priests, or seven chief priests. They didn't invite the rest of the Sanhedrin, just those seven chief priests, and together they decided, we're going to kill him. Somewhere in that house. We're ahead of ourselves. Uh, Jesus. Well, Sadducees lock arms with Herod. Now, Herod has one major, major fatal flaw, one major weakness in his whole kind of empire. He's built lots of things. Herod um, is... He built the, rebuilt the temple. He built a seaport on Caesarea. Just, uh, we still don't know how he did it fully. Uh, just a stunning achievement. Uh, Herod it brought the Olympics to, uh, an ancient version of the Olympics, to Israel. Uh, Herod is the guy who stood over the killing of the babies. I mean, he's that, he's that guy that we read about early in the story. Um, but Herod's done a lot of things. But he's got one major flaw. One thing his power can't do for him. He's human. He died. That's his flaw. He dies. He dies. Well, now what are we going to do? He's dead. Um, But Herod decided, before I die, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one of my many palaces, the one closest to Jerusalem, uh, outside of the city, one of my fortresses, and I am going to convert that into a mausoleum, essentially a giant tombstone. So he takes a bunch of dirt and he pushes it up against his palace and he converts the palace into a tombstone. This mountain, the pimple in the middle of the desert, it does kind of look like, I worked at McDonald's, I'm quite familiar with pimples. Uh, That is his tombstone. It's a mountain standing in the middle of nowhere. Jesus stands in front of this mountain and he says, you see this mountain? If you have by faith If you have faith, you can say to this mountain to jump into that sea, which was just over there, the Dead Sea, you can say to this mountain to jump into that sea, and it will. In other words, what he's saying, what Herod did by strength, by power, using manipulating those chief priests, what Herod did by force, well, it's just under a pile of dirt. Look at it. It's a pile of dirt. His kingdom, the Sadducees' kingdom, You high priest, you chief priest, your kingdom will all someday be under a pile of dirt. Your name will be erased from history. You will be an asterisk in God's story. You will not be the main player because God is bringing a kingdom and those who take it on faith, God is bringing a kingdom that will never end. In other words, remember his audience, this is a threat. And now... We can get into our story. Now that we put the five pieces in place, let me show you how they play out in real time. Verse 23. That wasn't too painful, was it? Okay. Um, Verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests, we know this word, and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Who are the chief priests? Those seven families, that religious mafia, who gave you your power? Herod gave us our power. Who gave you your power? Who are you? Who are you to think you can come in here and do anything? We have the power. Herod gave us the power. You're a nobody. You're a nothing, Jesus of Nazareth. You're from Nowheresville. Okay, verse 24. Jesus replied, I will also, I love the chutzpah. I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Don't you love that? I love the chutzpah. Like, he doesn't back down. He, he digs his feet in and he's like, listen, you asked me a question. How about I ask you a question? And I will answer your question if you can answer my question. By the way, you know whatever question Jesus is going to ask next is electric, right? Like whatever he's going to say next is going to be like, come on, this is like, Like the whole, he's got this whole tension moment. He's been 
cleansing a temple, cursing a fig tree, pointing at that mountain. The whole thing is like electric. They're angry at this point. And he's like, okay, if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. It's going to be, it's going to be like one of those questions um, back when I did uh, college ministry. There was one kid, anytime we do a question night, he'd always ask me the same question. Can God make a rock bigger than God can lift? Right? It's going to be like that kind of thing. Like, oh, I got you now. It's going to be something like that. Notice this question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Wait a minute, that's, that's his question? That's not a great question. What kind of question is that? John, you know my cousin John, you know how he's like dunking people in the water? Like what, what kind of question is this? Now, um, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Uh, based on how family systems worked in that day, cousins were uh, essentially like brothers, so John's kind of like Jesus' older brother. Anybody have an older brother? A couple of you. I always wanted an older brother. I had an older sister. Um, but I always wanted, I, I was always envious of my friends who had an older brother. Um, so those of you who had older brothers, I'm, I'm envious. I always got the hand-me-downs of my uh, sister, which is always a bit of a drag. Um, joke. It's a joke. You're here. Okay. Uh, so, oh man, I'm blushing. Jesus is talking about his cousin and he makes, he's got this moment. He's got the whole group ready. Like they're all there. And Jesus got this moment and his, his electric question back to them is, my cousin's doing a thing in the Jordan River. Is that of God or is that of, of human origin? It, it doesn't feel like that big of a question. But here's the thing. The question works. It works. They got no response. They got nothing. Uh, notice what comes next. Uh, they discussed it amongst them, among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, well, then I'm not telling you either. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. We don't know. Jesus responds, well, sorry, I'm not going to answer your question then. Now, it's one of those kind of things where it's like, okay, there's got to be more going on in this interaction. That question has to be bigger than what I'm reading it as. There has to be more going on. And that's why I gave you five pieces of information about the Sadducees. Let's pull the story together. Uh, there's more going on here. 200 years before Jesus, Judas Maccabees. How dare you Greeks kind of take our power. Judas Maccabees stages a revolt and wins. His first move is to cleanse the temple, get rid of the pagan images. His next move is to put leadership in place. He appoints the family line of Zadok. Those seven families become the new power structure. But within 20 years, the entire power structure, power goes to their head. And because of this, the priesthood splits. On the one, one side, you've got those who follow the chief priests, the Sadducees. On the other side, you've got a group of people who call themselves the modest ones. They refuse to play the game. In fact, they build their own monasteries away from Jerusalem, where they practice their priestly duties outside of Jerusalem. They call themselves the modest ones, or the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -S -E -E now, here's where things get, in my mind, really interesting. John the Baptist, do you remember what his dad does for a living? He's a what? He's a priest. We meet him at the in, the, in the Christmas story. Uh, Zechariah is a priest. Remember, he loses the ability to talk. He's a priest. In other words, he's a priest from the line of Levi. We're actually told that he's a righteous priest, which is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge from our author Luke. Um, we're told that he's a righteous priest. He's not one of the priests. He's not one of the corrupt priests. He's a Levite. He's a righteous priest. Now, through his family line then, that would mean that John the Baptist is also a what? A priest. He's also from the, apparently from the tribe of Levi. But John, when we meet John, he's not in the temple, is he? He's in the middle of the desert. Actually, he's by, a, he's by a river in the middle of the desert. He's described as wearing simple clothes, eating simple food, quoting the Bible, calling people to repentance and to prayer. Uh, and 
we are told he's out there in the middle of the desert performing baptisms. The specific location our authors give us. They don't just tell us he's in the desert. They tell us he's exactly in this part of the desert, a stone's throw from Qumran. He's performing baptisms. He's performing baptisms. Well, Qumran is in the middle of a desert. You get running water. You can channel the water for a couple months out of the year. The rest of the year, if you're a priest, you've got to go to the Jordan River. Now, we hear the word baptism, and we think all about, like, you know, the trough. and like the, we do, That's what we think when we think baptism. Baptism is a Greek word. It comes from the word baptizo. It means immersion. In the Hebrew, the word immersion is translated mikvah. Mikvah. A priest's job was to perform ritual immersion, ceremonial immersion, or ceremonial mikvah. That's a priest's job. John apparently seems to be siding with the Essenes. He's a priest. He's doing simple, simple clothes, simple food, quotes the Bible, calls people to repentance. He's doing immersion. He's doing mikvah. He's not in the temple. He's out there. Uh, by the way, listen to Jesus' question, the one that stumps them. Verse 25. John's baptism, say mikvah. John's mikvah, Jesus asked. Where does it come from? Was it from heaven or from human origin? See, we can read this and think, oh, Jesus is asking this esoteric question. Like, um, let's talk about John the Baptist's spiritual life. Do you think God gave him his spiritual life or do you think he found it on his... Like, we, we can misread what's, what Jesus is... What he's actually asking here, remember, John the Baptist, he's from the tribe of Levi. John is a priest, not because Herod said he's a priest. John's a priest because God set the system up back in Exodus. God said he's a priest. Who gave him that authority to be a priest? Not Herod. God gave him that authority. Do you see the trap? If these Sadducees come back and they say, we don't think John the Baptist is a real priest. They are essentially saying to Jesus and everyone else, they're essentially saying, we think Herod makes those decisions. We don't actually think God is the one who chooses to, who, who to be a priest. We think Herod gets to make that decision. Essentially, if they, if they say, we don't think John has a real authority, they're essentially saying, we think Herod is our God not Yahweh. However, if they don't answer this question, if they say he has authority, well, then all the things that John has been saying, you know John's number one message? Herod's a crook. In fact, Herod knows that this is the number one message because Herod beheads him, kills him. How dare you call out? He called out an affair of his. How dare you? Kills him. If they say, well, John has authority because the Bible says John has authority, now all of a sudden, Herod's a crook. That's his message. And by the way, that message after, the, after John the Baptist had his head cut off by Herod has, like, had the opposite effect of what Herod wanted. Herod wanted the movement to kind of die down, John's followers to kind of go away. But when they see what happened to John, it only emboldened them. We were right all along. Herod is, got, does not have the interests of the people in mind. He does not have our interests in mind. So the crowd's grown. John's disciples have grown, and now they're here. And Jesus, in a simple but brilliant question, sets the trap, and they fall for it. They can't answer. They know they can't answer. If they try to answer, it's either we say, we don't think God has authority, we think Herod has authority, or they incite a mob. What do you do? Do you love Jesus? I love my rabbi. I love him. So brilliant. Jesus will then tell three parables. We're not going to read them for the sake of time, but every single one of them, read the parables with this in your mind. Every one of them is a direct attack on the Sadducees. It's an attack. It's an attack. And the whole time he does it with that mound of dirt in the background. This is where your movement's going to end. Under a pile of dirt, God's kingdom will reign forever. But you have chosen to put your faith in that dirt, and so your, your movement dies. And then we get to the chief priests, the religious mafia. They hear this. And 
they, the religious leaders, look for a way to arrest him. I know it's really easy to read the stories of Jesus and picture Jesus as like this Mr. Rogers type where um, he's warm and fuzzy and like, and, and there's that side of Jesus. He is meek, right? He is filled with grace and truth. But listen, Jesus has, when it comes to defending people who are hurting, Jesus has incredible passion, incredible chutzpah. He will stop at nothing. You Sadducees, you sit in your mansions while your world starves. You rip off hurting people who are just trying to go to the temple to pray. They're just going for some food. You rip them off. You escalate the exchange rate. You, you rip them off on the sale of animals. You don't even allow them entry in. And Jesus is livid and will remove any barrier between hurting people and God. Um, and I, I th- you know this, um, that is our job also. We, we, it's harder to see in our world, I think. It's not um, escalated exchange rates on temple courts. Um, but, but anytime the church fails to welcome people or creates environments where we fail to welcome people, we create barriers, whether intentional or, ac- or accidental. Uh, anytime we put our, our feelings, our preferences, our, um, our, even our, our denominational differences between hurting people and their worship of God we create barriers between real people and God. I was reminded of a story as I was putting this together. Um, this, there's a story from a, a church in the 60s. It actually goes back to the 60s from Costa Mesa, California. It was pastored by a guy named Chuck Smith. Um, church came, became famous uh, quickly. Um, but essentially what this church, it was right off the beach. And um, they decided to make it, as part of their mission, they were going to try to reach these uh, kids who would gather up on the beach in California in the late 60s, um, we would call them hippies. Uh, and they decided they were going to do everything they can because they saw a drug problem growing. And so they thought, if only these kids knew Jesus, what if we created a worship environment where we removed all the barriers of, of music preferences? Of, what if we... So they did it. And guess what happened? These uh, young people were captivated by Jesus. They found his message absolutely compelling. And they actually thought the church was kind of cool. And so they would show up on Sundays, at first a few, then more, then more, then more, uh, right off the beach. Now this created a problem because the church had just put new carpet in. And uh, there are oil reservoirs, small patches of oil on the beach. And as the kids would come in barefoot off their surfboards and walk into the church, they would leave behind these oil splotches. As the story goes, one day Chuck Smith shows up to church, and as he's, he shows up, he sees a sign on the door of the church. The sign makes sense. The sign says, please wear shoes and shirts. Or shoes and, yeah, shoes and shirts. Makes sense. But what Chuck Smith realized was these kids, many of them are coming off the beach. They're coming in off their surfboards. They don't have, they're not, this is not a rule they're even familiar with. That sign could keep them from coming. So he rips the sign down. He then calls an emergency meeting of his elders, and he says, listen, um, this is our mission field. If we really want these carpets to remain clean, keep the sign up, but I'm gone. However, if we want to help these kids, remove all the barriers. We have seen more young people from that church in the 60s, a whole movement launched as kids got free from drugs and into the arms of Jesus. The role of the church is to look for the barriers and do whatever we can to remove the barriers. There are two homes in the story of Jesus that we've walked through. One home is in the city of Bethany. Remember the city of Bethany? It's a beggar's village. Um, Lazarus, Lazarus, uh, Jesus' friend, lives in Bethany. I should say he goes to Bethany to die because this is where people would go to die. It was the poor. Jesus spends his night in Bethany. The other home we looked at was the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus will do everything he can to make sure that these people have a voice, that they're represented, that they're heard. He'll remove whatever barrier to protect them. Caiaphas will remove, will put up any barrier he can to make sure his friends are protected from these people. See the the difference? 
Now, here's the thing I love about this church. Um, I, I don't know about you, but one of the things that, as I've been walking through Matthew, this is a message that just keeps coming up again and again and again. In fact, as, a, as pastors, we are walking through this series, and we're like, man, Jesus is really hard on the church. And that's going to feel really weird to consistently say to the church, you're bad. Because uh, like, it's, it's hard, and it's hard as a religious leader. He's hard on religious leaders. That's my gig. That's what I do. Um, and uh, one of the things... Uh, as we've been wrestling through this and as I've been wrestling through it, is this thing is confrontational. Um, But one of the things I've been really inspired by with this church is again and again, you all have um, stepped up and have shown that you're willing to do the work to remove whatever barrier, um, to remove any barrier that would stand between a hurting person and Jesus. Uh, And that's truly inspiring. Let me give you one more quick story and then... I'll be done, I promise. Um, quick story. A uh, couple years ago, um, uh, several years ago actually now, a couple from this church uh, invited me over to their home. And, uh, and it was, uh, I, won't, I won't give the name because, let me see if I scan the room. I don't have their permission. <laughs> but I don't think it's an embarrassing story. We'll call them the Smiths. If you're the Smiths, I'm not talking about you. Okay, we'll call, we'll call them the Smiths. Um, they invited me over to their home, and as I gathered in their home, uh, they had a couple neighbors stop by, and I started chatting with one of their neighbors, and like we had a great conversation. We decided to meet up later that week, so me and this neighbor ended up meeting up. And as I'm uh, meeting up with this guy, like uh, I-, I found him really interesting. He was a lot of fun to talk to, um, but we were just kind of doing that typical small talk thing, right? Um, and eventually, he tells me, so I, you know, I asked the question, like, so what is it you do for a living? And he just, he, he comes, he's like, you know, I sell, uh, I sell medical marijuana. In fact, um, this is, by the way, before marijuana was legal to sell other, other than a medical license. He's like, but dude, I could hook you up if you want. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'm not, it's not really my thing. Um, and then he asked me the question, so what do you do? I, we had not gotten to this point yet. I'm always waiting for this question. So I say to him, I say to him I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And he made a noise. Um, he <laughs> I've learned that this noise is, like, it's, I don't remember exactly his noise, but typically the noise is some form of, uh, like, it's, I don't know what to say in this moment, so i got to say something. Some noise has got to come out mixed with swear words coming out, but then the swear words get pulled back in. It's usually some form of a shh, wow. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> so I've also learned early on, like, okay, I got, uh, early in my ministry, I learned I have to be really quick because I don't want to create embarrassment or shame and usually, like, I don't want to create any of that. It's not his fault I'm a pastor. That's not his fault. That's my fault. So that's God's fault. Okay, so I, uh, so I quickly responded with, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I know the Smiths. Okay, so this is how that story starts. Um, and he then responds back, and he says, yeah, I used to go to church. I used to go to church. Uh, I don't go anymore. I uh, stopped going. Um, but he said, if I, if I went, I'd go to yours. And I said, thanks. Uh, that means a lot, and it really did mean a lot. Um, but I... I then followed it up with, I, but we don't really know each other that well, so, um, so tell me why. And he goes, oh, no, it's not about you. I like you, fine, fine, fine. But he goes, it's really not about you. It's about the Smiths. And then he told me this story. He said, we moved into the neighborhood um, a few years ago, and we were ready to move out. We were lonely. We would walk up and down the street, and every garage was shut, and everyone was on their back deck hanging out with other people. And he said, my family would walk down the street, and we felt all alone. And then one day, we saw a new neighbor move into the house, and uh, the Smiths, and <clears throat> she was outside one day, and while we were walking by, she came vigorously waving at me and came across the sidewalk and introduced herself and said, I'm new to the neighborhood. You should come over. We're going to have a party. I said, no, this is what he's telling me. He said, I said, no. Um, he said, yeah, our family, we, you know, like, honestly, like, it's just... It's a lot, and we got little kids. And she goes, oh, no, bring your kids. Of course bring your kids. We got little kids, too. Bring your kids. He's like, yeah, but my son's got autism, and, you know, it's just, it's just a lot. And she goes, come, just come. I'll be mad if you don't. Okay, so he ends up showing up um, to this house, and he said, this is his line. I won't forget these words. He said, it felt like my life was starting over. I watched my son playing with these other kids, Never once did I feel judged by this couple. They became like the life of the entire neighborhood. We would look forward to the night. We, we would call it an MC, right? A missional. We would look forward to this night when the, the community would gather in their house. We would look forward to this night. It's like my life started right over. 
So he said, if I, if I did go to church, I would go to your church. And then he said this line, because if you teach people to be like the Smiths, well, then that must be a pretty great church. The mission of the church is to see the hurting people in Bethany and to cross the street to wave them in and remove whatever barrier, whether whatever barrier, so that they can find their way back to God. That's our mission. And as a church, I'm really proud of you for doing that work. And we are just getting started. I think our mission should be to make our entire extended community to get to the, to get to the spot where they're all saying, Shh, wow. <laughs> it's our mission. Um, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, uh, Jesus, we thank you for continuing to invite us into deeper and deeper relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for teaching us, for helping us to grow in our, our knowledge of who you are. Um, but Lord, as we do, Lord, we thank you that you continue to, to push us to keep our hearts soft. Lord, as we look out into our world and we see so many hurting people, Lord, uh, so many hurting people are no longer even hiding behind walls. Lord, we see it right there on social media, pain after pain after pain. Lord, give us creative ways to tear down barriers. Help us to see it, Jesus. And as a church community, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see whatever barriers we might have that we can't even see um, that stand between hurting people and you. Um, Jesus, would you once again welcome home all those who are broken and hurting? Jesus, we pray this in your name. And everybody said, would you please? We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.